Matthew 5, verse 38. We're going to read verse 38 to 48. Let's see what this is all about. Here, here are the words of Jesus to us. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. In 249 AD, the Roman emperor Decius uh, was a cruel, cruel Roman emperor, unless you were Roman. But if you were a follower of Jesus, he hated the church, and he worked really, really hard to crack down on the movement of Christianity. By this time in history, there were several million Christians. It had grown from about 120 people in an upper room to several million Christians across the Roman Empire. It was a big deal, and he hated Jesus. He hated Christianity. So this Roman emperor, he worked tirelessly to persecute and destroy the church. Uh, it was the, one of the greatest persecutions in the history of Christianity, actually, that broke out. And he kind of allowed the Romans to do whatever they wanted to do to Christians, even if they were Roman as well. So you could burn a Christian's house down to the ground and not get in trouble. You could uh, help identify Christian neighbors or people in your life, and they would be arrested. Many Christians during this time lost their lives. They were killed and murdered. Uh, many Christians were thrown in jail, and their kids were left to wander the Roman Empire, not having mom or a dad. Uh, many of those kids ended up starving to death. I mean, this was a tragic time where people were being uh, uh, experiencing suffering, humiliation, beaten, imprisoned. If you're a business owner, they would shut your business down and effectively make it impossible to sell any goods or do any services in this culture. It was a really, really tough time. And this lasted for about a year. The very end of 250 AD, the persecution finally stopped, but the pain didn't stop. The pain was still there. In fact, the persecution had been so bad that other Christians had lapsed and renounced the Christian faith, signed a document saying that they were worshiping other gods, Caesar and the Roman deities, and had left and essentially left the Christian faith. They were called lapsi. The, the lapsy Christians had, had lapsed away. And what had happened is as soon as the persecution died down, they wanted to come back into the church. Oh, convenient now. You want to come back to the church after you've just signed a document saying you've worshiped other gods. And so what had happened in the church was this painful internal conflict of what do we do with these quote-unquote brothers and sisters who were Christians, so they say, and then when it got really hard, they bounced, and now they're coming back. 
And then to make matters worse, they had friends and neighbors and, and, and pagan friends around them that had been a part of their persecution. And so they were wrestling with how do we treat these people that have burned our houses down and, and helped kill our kids and thrown mom and dad in jail? How do we deal with our, our neighbors in the city? And then to make matters even worse, in 251 AD, a year later, the plague broke out. And this plague was one of the worst plagues in history. It caused incredible diarrhea, vomiting, boils all over your body. Most people that got the plague ended up dying. It was highly, highly contagious. So what had happened is they had taken these plague victims. Anytime you got the plague, they were taking people near death and literally tossing their bodies out on the street just to lay there, just to keep everybody else in the house okay. And, 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 and there are stories of dying people, not yet dead, dying people calling out to people passing by the street for help. Nobody would help them. In fact, according to Professor Alan Kreider, quote, many diseased and dying people asked the pity of the passers-by. What were Christians supposed to do? I mean, how would, how would they respond? What should their response be, both in the internal conflict in the church and then also with this plague, when even to touch a victim could mean that you get the plague and die too? How would you respond if this was modern day life for you. Well, we're looking at the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. We're halfway through his teaching. And if you don't know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, this is the most foundational set of teachings that Jesus has ever given for what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. So if you want to know what it is to be a Christian, Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus' very first sermon. It's the most foundational teaching that he gave on discipleship. And here's what's really interesting about this sermon. In the past section that we've been looking at, he's been telling us how not to harm the people in our lives, how not to harm the people in our lives with our lust, with our anger, with our divorce and unfaithfulness, and even with our, our untruthful tongue. Like how do, we, how do we live lives that don't harm other people with our behavior? And what he's doing today is interesting. He's taking a turn in the sermon. And instead of saying, here's how you don't harm other image bearers. Here's how you don't harm the people in your life. Now what he's going to ask the question of, hey, what happens when you're the one that's harmed? What happens when you're the victim? What happens when you're the one that's oppressed? When you're the one that's hurt? When you're the one that has been on the receiving end of some other person's harm? What do you do then? as a follower of Jesus. So without further ado, let's jump in and just look at this teaching line by line. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Let me just pause and give you some cultural context here. Uh, This phrase, you've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is Jesus actually quoting from three different passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus, in Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes from these various passages and sums up an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let me give you an example in Levitic, Leviticus twenty four nineteen: If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, that sounds a bit barbaric, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound a bit cruel and harsh? Like if you accidentally knock someone's tooth out, it's like, come here, which tooth was it? Okay, bang, got it. Now, now go, go about your day. Uh, what you did, now you had it coming to you. Oh, like you bumped into somebody and they, they lost eyesight. So come here, bang. All right, now you can't see in that eye as well. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? 
But actually, this is one of the most progressive, like ahead of its time commandments that you'll see in this culture. Because here's what this passage was. The the idea behind this in this culture was to actually keep revenge at bay and to help justice take place. Because what was happening in their day was if, if you got into a scuffle with somebody and they lost eyesight in their eye, then it wasn't like, okay, come here, let's take your eye as well. It was like, oh, you, you, you lost eyesight in your eye. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to kill your cousins. And I'm going to make sure that everybody in your family dies because of what you just did to me. It was like out of proportion, disproportionate response anytime something happened. And so this eye for an eye reality was actually given to the government of Israel so that the judges of Israel could enact it. It wasn't for individual people. Now, what had happened by the time Jesus shows up on the scene is that the religious leaders of his day had totally twisted this command. Instead of this being something that the the judges of Israel would enact, it now became something that they as an individual would enact just to seek revenge. So it was like, you know, something would happen to you and you're like, oh, you harmed my arm? Well, I'm going to harm your arm back. Oh, you hurt my feelings? I'm going to retaliate and do that back because, well, you know, an eye for an eye. And all of a sudden this passage got so twisted to be used as a passage for retaliation and revenge rather than a passage to keep disproportionate revenge in check. Rather than fighting for justice, this passage was like now used by the religious leaders of Jesus' day to harm people that harmed them. So Jesus is writing and he says, no, 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 you've missed the heart of this command. He's unveiling the deeper meaning. You've heard that it was said, but then look at what he says. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's weirdly stated. That's hard to understand. So here's another translation, the TEV. It says, do not take revenge on. Or I love the way Frederick uh, Bruner defines it. He says, do not ever try to get even with the evil one, with the evil person. Now let's just pause here. Like, Andrew, are you saying that if you follow Jesus and someone harms you, that you cannot seek revenge in any way? Is that what you're saying? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying that Jesus is teaching us. He's actually saying that any and all sort of retaliation, revenge, you grabbing justice by the hands and your own strength and power and unleashing that in the lives of other people, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you can't do that anymore. No more retaliation, no more personal vengeance and justice seeking in yourself. This is so countercultural to how we function in our world that it's almost impossible to believe that Jesus really meant this, isn't it? In fact, we live in a culture that celebrates, celebrates revenge stories. John Wick, anybody? You're like, oh yeah, let's just kill everybody. And we're like, yeah, let's go see that. I mean, that's, we celebrate those stories of just all outright, you know, someone harms me, I'm going to harm you, I'm going to harm your family, I'm going to harm their kids. And to the fifth generation, everybody's going to get harmed, right? We just live in a culture where retaliation is not even, we don't even think about it. It's just natural for us. That's what we do. How do we do this? today in 2019? Well, we go on Facebook and Twitter rants. You know who you are. We develop a harsh tone. We cut people off relationally. We withhold forgiveness and or affection. We become passive aggressive. We yell and we cuss. We honk our horn. We give people the bird, right? I know, I know it's church, but let's just be honest. You do that, right? We lawyer up. We defend our rights. 
We seek personal vengeance and justice. We get physical. We hit back. We wish them ill will. We celebrate the downfall of those who are hurt us. You'd never say it out loud, but when someone that's harmed you has something in their life that's tragic or takes them back a step or hurts them in some way, deep in your heart sometimes you go, yeah, that's what they deserve. You did that to me, now you got yours coming. And Jesus says to his disciples, no more. Don't ever try to even get even with another person. No more revenge, no more retaliation whatsoever. How do we respond? Like, if that's really what Jesus is teaching, and he's telling us, don't do this, then, then what is he calling us into? Well, well, look at what he goes on to say. He's going to give us four stories that I think are really profound. Uh, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let me just say, he's not encouraging passivity, and he's not encouraging us to become a doormat, but what I want you to do as best as you can is enter yourself into these four cameos, these four stories, and try to imagine, like, he's not saying, if it's one of these four things, then here's how you have to respond. If it's not one of those four things, you can do whatever you want. He's just saying, hey, here's some examples for how not to retaliate. Jesus is, is helping us out of our vengeful seeking. He's helping us out of our retaliation, and he's showing us another way. So four stories of how to confront evil creatively, courageously, with non-retaliation. You ready? Here's the first one. The slap. This is a wrong to your body. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, let me define this. A slap is not a punch. In this culture, a slap is a way to publicly shame someone. It's an honor-shame culture. So if you punch someone, you're trying to hurt them. If you slap someone, you're trying to hurt their character. You're trying to shame them in front of other people. Jesus is imagining a scene where you're standing in front of someone publicly in front of other people, and this other person reaches their hand back and slaps you, not to physically harm you as much, but to shame you as a person. Jesus says there are some ways that you could respond. You could run and crumple to the ground and take it, or you could fight back. Or here's the third way that Jesus says. You, they slap you, you pause, you look them in the eyes, and you turn the other cheek, and you let them hit you again. Now, here's what Jesus is actually saying. It's pr- profound. He's saying the way that you can, with non-retaliation, confront evil is by standing there, humanizing yourself in front of this person, and absorbing the pain of them shaming you one more time. And by doing so, you are actually exposing the violence and evil that's being unleashed in their heart. And that is a way that you can stop evil in its tracks you absorb the pain in yourself. The next example he gives is the coat. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your coat, let him have your cloak as well. This is a wrong to my property. Uh, Here's what Jesus is talking about. He's envisioning the scene where you're getting dragged to court. And in our culture, we don't obviously wear tunics and cloaks and all these weird other things. Some of you might, but uh, uh, what, what, what Jesus is saying here is imagine somebody drags you to court and they're wrongfully suing you. And they're like, you know what? I want, I, I want even your coat off your back. And Jesus is saying, okay, what you do is you actually offer up not just your coat, but even your undershirt, your tunic as well. 
Now, in this culture, it's interesting. Um, to see someone naked caused them shame. Whereas in our culture today, to be seen naked causes us shame. Like, oh my gosh, oh, they saw me naked, right? And that culture, it's the other way around. To see another person naked would, would cause you shame. What Jesus is almost humorously saying here is if they're trying to sue you for your coat, that literally in the courtroom, you're like, oh, you want my coat? Okay, great. And you just like start taking all your clothes off, stripping down naked and saying, here, you are reducing me to nothing, but here you go. Here you go. And it actually confronts their evil and their injustice in its tracks. The mile. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is a wrong to my liberty or my freedom. What Jesus is saying here is so interesting. Roman soldiers in that culture could grab any Jewish man that they wanted and say, you, yeah, 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 you. I don't care where you're headed. I don't care what you're doing. I need you to go with me this direction for a mile and carry my armor, which was about 60 pounds of weight. And so even if you were like headed to your job and you're running late, doesn't matter. Here, you, come here. And you've got to walk one mile out of your way with this Roman soldier, the oppressor, the one that you hate, the one that's oppressed you since 63 AD. You don't like anything about the Roman soldiers. And yet what Jesus says is when that happens to you, you know, imagine the scene. You get to the mile and and he's like, thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. He's like, no, I've I've got one more in me. Let's go one more. You you need another mile? Let's, Let's go one more mile together. And Jesus is saying that throughout that event, what will happen to the soldier is he'll be perplexed. He'll be confused. It'll beg some questions like, who are you? And why are you almost killing me with kindness here? And then the final thing is the loan that Jesus mentions. And this is a wrong to my generosity. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's some nuance here to understand this culturally, but the heart of what Jesus is saying is, do you know those people in your life that they're begging for stuff and you don't even know if their needs are legit? Or they borrow things from you and you're like, well, I'll never see that again. So you're like, oh, I'm not going to give my stuff to you. Like, you know, every time I lend you stuff, I miss, I never see it. Every, what Jesus is saying is actually, if that type of person asks you for something, give it anyway. If they, you know, if you have undependable borrowers in your life that, you know, you give your tools away and you're like, I'll never see that tool again. Jesus is saying, that's okay. There are worse things than having your generosity taken advantage of. Jesus says, let your generosity be taken advantage of. Let it be taken advantage of. There are worse things in this life. Now, here's what he's driving at. Your life, your property, your stuff, your money, even your own body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. So he's saying when someone harms you or does something to you, what actually the response should be, instead of seeking vengeance, the response should be to give your stuff away. This is a different type of love. Now, let me give some caveats here as your pastor. I, I, I want you to know if you're in this room and you're being sexually abused, you need to get out of that relationship. You need to call the police. You need to involve your pastors. You need to get some help. If you're in a relationship where you're being physically abused, you need to call the police. You need to get out of that relationship. You need to get some help. Reach out to us. Some of you, you read this and you're a police officer. 
or you're in the military and your job is, is actually sometimes to harm individuals. And this is producing questions for you. Like, how do I follow Jesus with my job and this profession? And there's a lot of nuance and there's, a, there's almost a can of questions that start to come out here. And I don't have time to answer every little question, but, but let me read this quote from Frederick Bruner that I think is gonna help understand what Jesus is saying here. Here's what he says. Sometimes Christians are public persons and official capacities representing and defending others. Such Christians' responses to injustice, while gentle and peace-seeking in form, may have to be firm and even severe in substance. Persons in authority must defend their communities from exploiters of every kind and not avert their eyes, I love this, or turn other people's cheeks. Sexual harassment requires women to pursue their rights and protection from authorities Racial and other discrimination oblige minorities and those exploited to seek judicial redress. Jesus' command is not a command of irresponsibility or cowardice. Listen to this. It is a command for all disciples to seek peace more creatively and less vindictively. So listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're wrestling with this, this is what he's saying. That retaliation and revenge and fighting for your own rights and justice is no longer something that we do because your body, your life, your money is not your own. You give it away. This is hard. And if you're like, wow, that's really hard, don't worry, it's about to get way harder. You ready? Because up to this point, what Jesus has said is, don't do this. But now he's gonna tell us what to do. Now he's gonna tell us how to live. So look at Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice that that word enemy is singular. Now listen to this. But I say to you, love your enemies, plural, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In that culture, tax collectors were like the worst of the worst. Jesus is saying the worst of the worst even love their own. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That word Gentiles like referring specifically to pagan people that don't believe the God of the Bible. He's saying even people that don't believe in the God of the Bible still greet one another. This teaching is interesting, isn't it? Uh, the, the cultural background here is fascinating. This phrase, uh, love your neighbor, is littered all throughout the Old Testament. Littered. It's like one of the most important commands in the Old Testament. But what had happened to the Jewish community by this point is that they had so narrowed down the definition of neighbor. So they're like, okay, neighbor, what, what God meant with neighbor was like all of humanity. And what the Jewish community had started to do over time is, well, neighbor means if you're a Jewish person and you live close to me, and I like you, right? And if you don't meet that criteria, then you're by definition not my neighbor. So I have to love my neighbor. Yeah, but let's just, who is my neighbor really? I mean, it's, it's, it's the people I like that live close by and happen to be the same ethnicity as me. And Jesus comes along. And by that time, this other statement that you may not recognize, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that was almost a tongue-in-cheek comment. You will never find that second half in the Old Testament ever, whatsoever. It never, ever says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy anywhere in the Bible. But it became this tongue-in-cheek response that Jewish people would have together. Well, love your neighbor. Yeah, but we can hate our enemy. 
Well, love your neighbor, but yeah, but you can hate your enemy. And what Jesus is saying is, you've heard that said, but I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. You probably, if you grew up in church, have heard this phrase. And I want you to just, if I could men in black you in this moment, you know, and make you forget everything that this is one of the most subversive, crazy, outlandish things Jesus has ever said. Don't miss the heart of it. In this culture, they had enemies. In particular, it was the Roman army. It was the Roman government who had moved in in 63 AD and started to oppress the people of Israel. They, they had taxed them at insanely high prices. They had restricted them from their freedoms. They had uh, persecuted and humiliated and killed them. I mean, if you grew up a Jewish person, you hated, hated, hated the Roman soldiers. In fact, there is even this branch of Jewish people, a sect called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii were people that were known to wear these cloaks with small hidden daggers in their cloaks. What they would do is they would sneak out in crowds and they would find Roman soldiers and they would pull out the the dagger and just like slit Roman soldiers' throats and then hide back into the crowd. And then what they would do is they they would even find Jewish people, men and women, who were supporters of the Roman army and they would slit their throats publicly making a scene and then slip back into the crowd. The Sicarii was just kind of summing up the the traditional feel of the day. If you were a Roman soldier, if you were uh, the Roman government, if you were uh, Roman whatsoever, you you were the enemy. You were the oppressor. You hated, hated the Romans. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, the very first faces that would come to mind would be the Romans. Jesus says, yeah, I want you to love them and I want you to pray for them. Now, when we hear this, we're like, oh, great. You know, I love everybody. I mean, that's kind of our thing today. Oh, I love everybody. Um, but the reality, what's so hard about this is that you and I don't think of ourselves as having enemies, do we? It's almost like the word hate. Well, I don't hate them. I just wish that they'd die and, you know, be buried in a shallow grave somewhere. But I don't hate them. I wouldn't go that far. No, no, I love them. I mean, I don't have any enemies. I just never want to see that person ever again. And if I do, I definitely want to kill them. But I don't have any enemies. No, we have enemies. This can be an enemy, whether it's religious or political or personal. Let me give you a working definition of enemy that I wrote up just to try to help you kind of get at the heart of what Jesus is saying. An enemy is a person or a group of people who have wronged you or wronged someone that you care about. An enemy is someone that you are repulsed by. An enemy is someone that you struggle to be around. An enemy is someone that you gossip about. An enemy is someone that you have written off. An enemy is someone you think less of. An enemy is someone who holds a different political view or religious belief. An enemy is someone that when their name comes up in conversation, you roll your eyes. An enemy is someone you don't want to forgive. Friends, we have enemies, don't we? We do. Some of you have lots of enemies. And you know what Jesus' call is to all of us? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's not wrong to have an enemy. Can I just say that? Like sometimes you can't help it. You just have an enemy. We have enemies and that's not wrong. But what is wrong is to hate them. 
What is wrong is to not love them if you're a follower of Jesus. And some of you are like, okay, okay, fine. I love my enemies. I love everybody. But here's the problem with that. The word love in our culture can mean a lot of different weird things. Like, I love my wife. I love Jesus. I love ice cream. Right? Do I love all the same? No, obviously not. But we only have one word for love, where, whereas in Greek, there are actually three different words for love. And the word that Jesus chooses to, to, to use for love here is the word agape. And it's the highest form of love. It's universal. It's unconditional. And here's the heart of what agape means. It's sacrificial love for the good of another person, where you actually put your rights on the back burner. You actually sacrifice your heart for someone else. You actually give away your stuff It's not loving by saying I love. It's loving by loving actions of giving your life away for the good of another person. Jesus is saying to us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you now have to give yourself away for your enemies, for those people, the ones that have harmed you, the ones that have hurt you, the ones that have shamed you, the ones that have said things to you, the ones that don't think the way you think or believe what you believe or hold different political views, we now offer ourselves for the good of those people and sacrificial love. This is countercultural. And some of you are like, Jesus has lost his mind. He's lost his mind. And some of you are like, surely this never shows up anywhere else in scripture. He just like the sun was hot, you know, and he got, he hadn't had any water. I mean, didn't he just fast for 40 days recently? He's probably crazy. So he didn't mean this. Here's Jesus again in Luke chapter six. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Some of you are like, really? Well, maybe Paul says something different. Here's Paul, Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never, never avenge yourselves. Ever, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, there's coming a sovereign, judgmental, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth that God will do himself. Do not think that for justice to be had, you've got to be the one in the driver's seat. That's not, the, that's not what Jesus would say. Paul goes on, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, don't just say you love him. Feed him. For if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of you are like, finally some justice, burning coals, ah. Actually, what that meant was like, you will wake him up to reality. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Preston Sprinkle says this. He says, Jesus' command to love your enemies was the most popular verse in the early church. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of Christianity, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first century Christians. Matthew 5.44 was the so-called John 3.16 of the early church. Can you imagine Tim Tebow? Instead of, for God so loved the world, it was like, love your enemies. And among love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. 
Enemy love, rather, was the hallmark of the Christian faith. Other religions taught that people should love their neighbors. They even taught that forgiveness for those who wronged them. But actually loving your enemy, only Jesus and his followers took love this far. Because this is how far the love of God extends to us. While we were God's enemies, Christ loved us. Can you imagine if we loved like this? Can you imagine if we loved like this? What would it look like if Frontline created a culture that looks so different than the world and we started unleashing rather than retaliation and vengeance and justice and demanding our rights? Imagine if Frontline created a culture where we loved those who were unlovable, where we loved those not just who were unlovable, but that we actually didn't want to love. We loved even our enemies. I recently heard about Bob Goff. Uh, he's a, a, a writer that has written some great stuff. But one of the things he does is when people say things publicly about him that are wrong or hurtful or just untrue, he will write them sweet, beautiful notes to say, hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm blessing you in Jesus' name. And I'm asking the best for God to work in your life and family. He'll buy them gift cards to like fancy restaurants and hand deliver it and be like, here, I want you to have this. Take your wife out. I was so moved by this. It's like, I've got to start loving like this. Imagine if someone wrongs you and they do something wrong. You're like, you know what? You know what you need? You know what you need in your life? You need a date night with your spouse. You need someone to watch your kids so that you can get out of town and rest. Here's 300 bucks. Just go, go have fun. That would be the type of love that Jesus is imagining here. People in our church are doing this and it's encouraging. And one of the things I've heard is as people love radically like this, what they're saying is, you know, it's so hard to maintain anger while I'm actively praying for and blessing my enemy. I just can't do it anymore. It's like fixing me from the inside out. And that's why Jesus ends this teaching in Matthew 5, 48 like this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That verse has freaked you out. A lot of you are like, oh, does that mean like you have to literally be perfect for God to love you? And no, 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 no. That's not what it means at all. This word perfect doesn't even mean what you think. In Greek, it's teleos. And what that word means is to be whole or to be mature. What Jesus is saying is enemy love actually makes you a whole mature person. It helps you become an integrated whole that, that it's actually hating your enemies that starts to tear you apart from the inside out. This is good for them and it's good for you. I was so moved by this. Like, have you ever seen someone in a riot throw a Molotov cocktail like on, on a video or, or maybe like they pick up a rock and they're chunking it at their enemies? Have you ever seen that? I was so moved by this Banksy, Banksy picture. This is what Jesus is calling us to as the church. Hold still, I'm going to unleash blessing and love from God all over your life. Hold still, don't move. You know what you have coming? This is what you deserve. Just affection and mercy and forgiveness and kindness. And what do you want, money? Here's some money. What do you need, a date night? I'll do that for you. Like I'm unleashing the love and mercy of God all over you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Can we just admit, like look up here. This is so hard, isn't it? In fact, this is impossible. It's impossible to love like this unless you have been loved like this before. Do you know who loved us like this? God the Father says that while we were his enemies, he decided to send his son for us. God the Son of which we were his enemies, said yes joyfully and obeyed and came to this earth. And and the second he landed on planet earth, 
Jesus was loving and unleashing the heart of God, the blessing of God, walking up to people that didn't deserve it, like prostitutes and Pharisees and tax collectors and all, all people he was inviting to himself. He was unleashing forgiveness and mercy and love. And then Jesus goes to a cross, and on the cross, he dies for his enemies. Think about that. Jesus doesn't value his own life as much to lay it down so that we could be loved and forgiven. And then he rose again from the dead, and he offers us a new identity. And here's the most bizarre thing. This idea of adoption, that God would not just say, all right, you're forgiven, now get out of here. No, it's you are my enemy, but I want you as a son or as a daughter. I want you in my family. I want to do good to you forever. I want to be kind to you forever. I want to be loving to you forever. I want to be forgiving towards you forever. That's what God has done. And when you taste that love, the love from someone who can pray for his enemies while hanging on a cross, it just makes you a person who wants to love like that. All right, let's close. Whatever happened to the heavily persecuted early church? That story where persecution had arisen, Christians had lapsed, the plague broke out. Whatever happened to those Christians? How did they respond? What did they do? Well, Bishop Cyprian from Carthage, he invited his church together, the epicenter of all the persecution and the the plague outbreak. He invited his church together and he began to just be overwhelmed by how they were loving the people inside of the church, even the ones who had lapsed. Christians were visiting plague victims. Christians were forgiving and extending mercy. And the most quoted verse is Jesus saying, this is how we are are to love. And then he addresses the crowd like this. Alan Kreider says, Cyprian's flock were deeply schooled in Jesus' teaching that they should love their enemies. And Cyprian extended this teaching by applying it to the provision of crisis nursing for, quote, our brothers, but not only our brothers. And then listen to this section of his sermon, looking at his church in the eyes, plague outbreak, people that have persecuted you recently. He says, you Christians, you are my people and flock. You know the mercy of God and you demonstrate this by providing visits, bread and water for other believers who are suffering. I praise God for your faithfulness. Now, I'm calling you to broaden your view, to exercise a divine-like clemency by loving your pagan neighbors. Visit them too. Encourage them. Provide bread and water for them. I know that in recent months, some pagans have been involved in persecuting you. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation and help them. And then he ends it like this. You are God's children. The descendants of a good father should prove the imitation of his goodness.